0: This is Brain
1: Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. There are certain events in our lives that we are able to remember with a pretty decent level of detail. These are usually important or unique events. Maybe when you moved to a new state or went through an emotional breakup but the vast majority of events in our lives we have a hard time remembering or have simply forgot. For example, do you remember what you had for lunch two months ago? (laughs) I know I certainly don't. In fact, even for those significant events, it turns out that the level of detail with which we can recall decays at a sort of shocking rate. Over time, memories of events turn from being rich and detailed to fuzzy and generalized so what is going on in the brain to explain this in today's episode I chatted with Dr. Paul Franklin, a neuroscientist who is stationed at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and affiliated with the University of Toronto. There Dr. Franklin teams up with his wife, Dr. Sheena Jocelyn, to try and understand how the brain encodes and retrieves memories. In the interview, we talked about how we think memories are organized in the brain and how they change with time, how newborn neurons can impact both learning and forgetting, and about Dr. Franklin's love for football the soccer kind as always you can check out our website www.brainpodcast.com to see additional content about our guests let's get to the interview
0: okay so so I'll start um, yeah so 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 I'm, I'm Paul Franklin and I have a, a lab at the Hospital for sick Children in in um, Toronto it's a pediatric hospital. And then our lab is also affiliated to the University of Toronto in departments of psychology, physiology, and Institute of medical science. So we've been there about 10 years, and my lab is a particular situation because it's actually two labs. My my lab and my wife's lab are completely integrated. They they run together. And um, in those labs, we're interested in in memory in general. And in particular, we're really interested in two questions. And the first question is how... Are memories organized in the brain and how, as memories uh, age or mature, how that organization might change and the sort of processes that contribute to that reorganization. And then the second question we're interested in is that we know that hippocamp- in the hippocampus, there's um, ongoing um, neurogenesis, so the production of new neurons. And we're interested in how those new neurons impact uh, hippocampal memory function. We, see, we do all these studies in, in, um, in mice for the most part.
1: Do you do you enjoy working in Toronto? The the space that you're at, the lab that you have, and then also working with your wife. And how how are your labs integrated? Are you guys together, like
0: sharing similar spaces? What, yeah. What so like? yeah. so in terms of the integration, so we um, I, I imagine like many people in 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 our field, you you end up meeting your spouse um, because you spend time with them. And and uh, Sheena was a graduate student when I was a graduate student, and so we. We, um, were, did our PhDs together in different labs. And then as postdocs, we eventually went to the same lab, to Arsino you know, Silva's lab. And then, then we, um, had the sort of classic two-body problem. In our case, we had a two-body problem where we both studied more or less the same type of thing. And so we had the struggle to find a, a job or two jobs in, in one city. And, um, it turned out that, uh, we had a, one or two offers, but SickKids was, was, the, was by far the best because they, um, they were interested in both of us and they were in a position to offer us both positions. So um, in terms of sort of career, we initially try to keep things quite separate yeah. um, to get some kind of level of independence. Um, but after a while, it just became so ev- evident. From day one, our labs were integrated. So so everybody um, uses the same equipment. Um, people from Sheena's lab um, work on projects in my lab and vice versa. And so there's a real nice synergy because we now instantly had a very large group, even when we were just starting out. Yeah. Um, and there's people with many different types of expertise. And so there's lots of people you can turn to if you want to learn uh, molecular biology or learn something about behavior or something about imaging. So that's sort of how it works. Everybody... If you talk to people in the labs they do know which lab they're in but sometimes they forget it's, <laughs> it's that sort of integrated That's yeah. nice.
1: Uh could you tell me about where your background before you were a graduate student what you where you studied what you studied and what kind of things what drew you to, to science?
0: Yeah, in terms of science I wasn't I mean I when I I grew up in England and um in school uh, in England, you do A levels and you choose three subjects. And I chose maths, physics and chemistry. So that was like a solid sort of science background. And on the basis of that, I, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do at university, but I, I went to the University of Sheffield and there I, I essentially, um, in the first year did an engineering course. So I was, uh, in the Department of Materials Science and I quickly got very realized I was not interested in in glasses, polymers, ceramics, or metals it was it, to me this wasn 't so interesting um, and uh i was interested i've always you know I, like anybody been interested in how um how people work and um in particular in sort of psychology and so across the field from where material science wasn't sheffield there 's the psychology department and i um I decided to switch to psychology so I got to psychology and then um uh, i I became a little uh, I, in some aspects of psychology were a little bit unscientific for me, maybe a bit too artsy, so mm-hmm. I gravitated naturally to towards what we might call the sort of harder um, end of psychology so in the final year there i I did a uh, thesis course in neuroscience um and we we did recordings from anesthetized animals and looked at sort of sensory inputs into the superior colliculus. And so that's when I sort of got the the bug about doing neuroscience. Mm.
1: I actually had a very similar trajectory coming into it, where I did I started biology, liked psycho- psychology, what was really interesting to me, but then yeah. it was the mechanistic kind of stuff that sort of like got me interested in it. Did um, what did you um, so what drew you then to graduate school and uh, where did you go to uh, graduate school? And yeah, I went to graduate
0: school in in, um, in Toronto. Um, was that immediately after graduating undergraduate? Yeah, it was pretty during- much. I, I spent one year. Um, doing a bit of traveling, and then I then I went to Toronto and did my PhD in a psychology department. But um, again, doing neuroscience work.
1: Okay, so at that point, you kind of said neuroscience is the is my the bug. I got you got yeah. interested in that. Okay, yeah. So then you met Sheena too in in graduate school. Was that early on, or was that like It oh, was pretty early on? I think it was in yeah. the first year we met. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then um, you guys both. What, what was what was that experience like for you?
0: Well, the Toronto experience was good. It was a. I mean. We had a pretty, so the department I was in was a very, um, strong cognitive psychology department, um, and still is. Um, so they had people, um, some of the sort of the, the greats of, uh, North American cognitive psychology, people like Endel Tolving and Gus Craig, Morris Moscovich were in this department. So there's this very strong tradition. Um, so in that sense, it was an exciting place to be. Um, and also a lot of my contemporaries also, went on and stayed in science and so have jobs now, albeit not not necessarily in neuroscience, but other other fields of psychology. So it was a good time.
1: Could you talk about the next step after after graduate school?
0: Yeah. So at that point, um in my PhD I was um, I studied the startle reflex. So I, in a very sort of reduced rap preparation. So there wasn't much behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. we were looking I was recording in the muscle and I was electrically stimulating parts of the brainstem. And, um, you yeah, know, it was interesting enough, but towards the end of my PhD, I started getting interested in learning and we were doing some fear potentiated startle work. So some fear conditioning, essentially, and learning about Pavlov- Pavlovian conditioning. Um, at that point, um, I realized I was really interested in learning. And also at that point, I realized that neuroscience, I suppose at any point in history, neuroscience is always changing. At that point, it was changing, um um, in terms of techniques. And, uh, why, what I appreciated at that point was that I should go to a lab where I would learn, uh, a sort of, at that point, a contemporary technique. And so that's why I joined, um, Alcino Silva's lab because he had around that time pioneered the use of, um, um, gene targeting approaches to study memory cognition in mice. He had just published a paper in, in, um, or a couple of years previously had published a paper in, in science with Sumo Tonogawa looking at where he'd knocked out Alpha Cam K2 and shown that these mice had LTP deficits and learning deficits. And so this was, um, at the time a very sort of exciting new field. And I, I, I wanted to be a part of that and use these sort of contemporary approaches.
1: That paper was influential then in sort of like you noticed that that was kind of a a, t- a contemporary technique, and then that was that sort of a a good example of what you wanted to do or yeah
0: know, sort of... i I mean I recognize it and I recognize it maybe more so now, but definitely then that I think the best science is 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 a combination of 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 great ideas having strong theory but also having great techniques and mm-hmm. so it's possible to just have strong techniques and do good science and it's also possible just to have strong theories but maybe less interesting techniques and do good science but it's way easier to combine those two things so that's that's sort of what i saw as the potential in in um in working in alcino's lab at cold spring harbor
1: could you tell me about how you do the idea generation component of science? Kind of yeah, study?
0: I mean, I'd say Alcino in particular. So I think, you know, my, my first thing is that it's very hard to sort of introspect about how you come up with a good idea. And I often say, say in the lab, okay, we need to come up with a good experiment. And, it's, of course, it's way easier to say that than actually come Same. up with it. Like, yeah, that's right. We should come up with that excellent experiment. I start and there. If you start there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you hope it goes in the right way. So the the um the approach i think I've developed is to be patient um and we did actually with our neurogenesis work so in the case of neurogenesis i had a, I had a postdoc join my lab and he wanted to study neurogenesis and i I was like reasonably enthusiastic but i i i didn't know what, um what kind of question we could ask and, he, and you know we we had we had a choice we could just ask do any experiment and do um you know just measure something uh or we could sort of wait until we came up with a good experiment and we just waited so we were patient and we thought about it and thought about it and then i in that instance we saw a result that someone else had just published and and we and it sort of made a connection for us and we said okay that's the experiment we need to do we can we can that gave us the clues as to how to do our experiment so that patience i think is important i remember when i was a postdoc in alcino's lab one day i went into his office and i I was so proud of this idea i'd come up with this very clever behavioral experiment to study um the role of the transcription factor kreb in in memory and what i wanted to do was to sort of separate the different components of learning and the role of kreb in those different components and, and forming the cs representation the u.s representation and i remember alcino sat there and he said that's a great idea paul but i don't think it tells us anything and i i was so defeated i left his office and i said that's terrible but i you know i think at the end of the day he was right i mean it was it was a clever experiment it was kind of cute but it really didn't tell us anything new that it was the conclusion was always going to be just the same conclusion that um in alcino's case he'd published two or three years previously that kreb was important for memory so um so i think that's an important thing is is not just to do experiments but to wait
1: yeah and
0: even if it comes it I guess
1: you're saying even if an idea seems clever and is very maybe exciting to mill it over, think about it and ask their their big question, what will this tell us? What's the... Exactly. uh, It's got
0: to be the... Yeah, to see whether it's something you're getting at something fundamental and and tells you something um, different about the biology. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Um, okay, let's go a little bit to some of the uh, some of your research. When you started the lab, did you go in um, immediately thinking you would be doing uh, neurogenesis type research? Was that sort of a, a fundamental core of that, or did that come later? Or did you want to do just learning and memory when you started off?
0: Uh, I, when I went to my new lab, I'm in in Alcino's lab, I'd publish stuff on um, on systems consolidation. So this idea that uh, memories for events, episodes reorganize over time, and that was the um, the sort of plan I had for my new lab that I would do something along those lines, and and that still is the case. That's, that's still one question we work on. And as I mentioned just just earlier, that um, about one or two years in, I got a postdoc, and this postdoc was very insistent. He really wanted to study neurogenesis and memory, um, and so um, eventually, once we came up with the right experiment they and then we went down that path and and you know that was the for us it was a it was a great thing um because it allowed us to uh, allowed me to sort of start thinking about a field i mean the first the first year or so of that i i spent with this postdoc he was very knowledgeable and, and he taught me everything i i knew about neurogenesis i and uh and so um so i learned lots from him and at the same time i think we benefited from having a f- reasonably Sort of fresh perspective on the problem compared to other people who'd been in that field. So it's actually very nice to go and start thinking about something which you're less familiar with. You're less constrained by um, by the sort of existing sort of knowledge and existing sort of um, um, zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. In terms of neurogenesis, um, yeah. So so neurogenesis is is the production of new neurons. Um, of course, it happens. Um, embryonically and and nasally at, at high rates, but it persists in the um, adult brain in two particular regions and within the hippocampus and also within the olfactory system. And so, um, so uh, through this work we became interested in how that production of new neurons might impact uh, memory function in the hippocampus
1: what are some of the core findings that maybe you, your lab or other people have produced to uh, convince us that these newborn neurons in adulthood are important for, for yeah. new
0: memories? So um, the first study we did was we were interested in asking the question um, whether these new neurons became integrated into hippocampal memory traces. And so the approach that we took was to use an um, immediate early gene mapping approach to to identify cells within the hippocampus that are activated during memory retrieval for example and simply um by doing immunohistochemistry label newborn cells and then um, label cells that are activated and ask whether there's overlap to what degree do, do those populations overlap and through that work we were able to um sort of determine or define um the age at which the cell age at which new neurons become integrated and begin to contribute presumably to hippocampal dependent memories. And obviously our work is not alone. There was many other people doing similar types of experiments. We sort of converged on the same type of idea that cells need to mature to about four weeks or five weeks of age before they. Uh, become integrated into hippocampal circuits and become important for memory function, so
1: this is the idea that these newborn cells are turning over throughout your adulthood and yet it takes about four potentially five weeks till they reach an age in which they can then integrate into a
0: certain yeah, circuit yeah i mean t- it, take, it takes it takes um, uh, you know a couple of weeks for them to make connections uh, to to, uh, to, to, to form, just grow and yeah to up. grow grow uh, axons grow dendrites. Um, and to mature enough so that, the, that they sort of behave like um, uh, mature neurons yeah uh,
1: what's your idea on how memories i guess exist at one point uh, in the hippocampus uh, and then at some point are able to sort of move to another part what how do you think this works, and what is the implication for sort of real life learning
0: yeah so so the sort of classic idea is is more or less that that um, there is a a sort of transformation of a memory from a hippocampus-dependent form to a uh, form that doesn't depend so critically on on the hippocampus. I think one of the sort of misconceptions is that even within uh, the sort of standard models of how this process might work is that that information is initially encoded in hippocampus as well as cortex. So it's not like a movement of a trace from one location to another, but it's a gradual sort of... um, um, uh, lessening of the requirement for the hippocampus to retrieve that information. Oh, okay,
1: so the idea would be yeah. both both are engaged and in potentially uh, integrated early on in the memory formation, and yet then it's a loss, the requirement of hippocampuses.
0: Yeah, in, so over time that that memory may be supported independently of the hippocampus, okay. and may be retrieved through extra hippocampal uh, dependent mechanisms. Of course, this idea is highly controversial as well. I mean, there's people who... Um, uh, would argue that the hippocampus is always necessary for that memory as well. And then there's some nuances as to under what conditions the hippocampus is necessary and what conditions it's not. And that gets into some interesting areas. So the sort of current thinking, I would say, would be that the um, when a memory's um, become hippocampal independent, that memory also is qualitatively different, that the memory may be less detailed and more just like, whereas a memory that... Um, engages the hippocampus, maybe more precise, more detailed, and and so on.
1: Could you tell us, um, there was a paper that uh, your lab put out that I thought was really interesting about this idea um, that as time goes on, memories become more generalized or more just like, Um, could you tell us kind of how how did you get down to answering that question and the evidence that sort of supports that?
0: Yeah, this was a great this was a great project and, and one which was like really, really driven by the postdoc Blake Richards in this in this case. So um he was interested in in this general sort of notion that um memories might be precise, but over time um they may become more schematized, more general in nature. And the way he set about to um test this idea was to sort of go back to um Ma's work and Ma sort of talked about the process of consolidation being important for the extraction of what he called statistical regularities. And so what you want to know is how the world works. Typically, you want to generate some kind of model of the world. And so the way he tested this was kind of clever. So he trained animals, in a, in a sort of traditional water maze, but changed the task a bit. What he did was on each day, they had a platform, but that platform was drawn would changed location on each um, training day. Um, there was an underlying pattern to the distribution of those platforms. It was drawn from a Gaussian sort of uh, uh, distribution. Um, and so on any one training day, it wasn't evident where that, um, th- that distribution wasn't evident to the animal. But over time, the animal should start to appreciate that there's some kind of pattern underlying this. And what um, Blake showed in his study was that he asked the question whether um, consolidation led to better pattern matching. Um, over time. And so what he did was train them in this um, stochastic sort of water maze task, test their memory one day afterwards or test their memory one month afterwards and ask whether at one day or one month did they better uh, match the distribution to which they were exposed during training. And he found that there was an improvement over time. So at one month in the absence of any additional training the animals would better match that distribution. So that was evidence for some kind of post-training processing, memory processing going on, which, um, I mean, if you stretch it, would could be um, characterized as a, a as an extraction of so this is called regularities or model building. Hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I, that was a very clever and interesting idea. Do you think that that happens for all forms of memory all the time, or was that you think that sort of generalization or kind of this post learning uh, remodeling taking place throughout the entire lifetime? Or I find
0: when we think about memory, sort of colloquially, we think of, of a sort of particular episode, and you might say, okay, I, I remember when me and Sheena got married. And um and then you try and sort of remember specific sort of details of that experience. And that's what we think of when we think about memory. But in, in reality, I think we overestimate how good our memories are. So even of like really critical important events like when you get married or maybe when your kid was born or stuff like that, if you go back and you think about it, firstly your memory is probably quite inaccurate. Um and secondly, um it's also much more vague than you imagine it would be for something that important in your life. And then if you sort of think back to something you did perhaps quite mundanely this morning, like um, I you know, had breakfast, I can remember way more details and probably way more accurately my breakfast this morning than um, some important event from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. So I think over time, I think what we do is, is the, our memories sort of extract those generalities, and we have sort of models of how the world works as opposed to the details. The details in the end don't don't tend to be that important.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think that's, but it's interesting that I guess maybe the the potential weight or I don't know, um, significance of the event may set up the, that you remember the generalities, but then s- certain things like your mundane breakfast actually gets completely probably yeah. forgotten. And, so, so that's absolutely yeah. true. So I
0: think uh, the vast majority of our everyday experience is forgotten. And that's yeah. that's something we're, we're of course interested in now. Um, some things are retained but they retain in a form which is still pretty impoverished. Even when we go back ten years, I think those are still pretty impoverished memories. Okay, this is
1: a great segue. Can we talk about so you, the other line of research your lab does a lot is is now in this idea of forgetting how this works, how, how memories are forgotten? Uh, can we can we just start off very generally, and can you tell us what is forgetting, why it's important, uh, what yeah, what is a psychological process? Yeah,
0: so I think you can define forgetting in in, in a number of ways. Probably the, maybe a simple way is to say that given the same set of retrieval cues, um, if you could retrieve some memory at some time point one, and then at later some time point, given the same retrieval cues, you now can't retrieve that memory, then that is a reasonable um, definition of forgetting. Um, so we, um, we've been interested in how um, hippocampal neurogenesis might contribute to this forgetting of hippocampal type memories. Um, so I, where should I start? Maybe what I can do is, is to sort of describe how we got into our forgetting oh, sure, studies. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was more or less accidentally. We, um, we were doing some experiment. It was, it was like some con- control condition where we had trained animals um, and then we had them exercise for a month. Exercise leads to robust increases in neurogenesis. And then we tested their memory. And this was some control condition. Um, and your, your, it was your guess that they would remember? Yeah. Anything maybe I, even better our, or something? Well, our assumption was they would just remember and, and then I can't, I can't even remember what the motivation for the experiment was. But what we found was that the animals that had exercised for a month and had twice as much um, neurogenesis um had half as much memory and so it was like it was way too interesting to ignore we didn't quite understand it when we first saw it yeah
1: how did you feel about it when you first saw this result what was do you you remember (laughs) yeah i
0: remember we talked about it a lot and we didn't um we didn't understand it um but we knew it was way too uh interesting to to not pursue and so it, I, I, mean, I now looking back my memory's probably not completely accurate but I, so I imagine we we got to understand it pretty quickly yeah. um but who knows but we um we then began to appreciate that um a number of people um before had sort of hypothesized that one impact of new neurons in hippocampal circus um would be to induce forgetting and whereas most people had sort of in, um sort of emphasize and, and sort of focus on how new neurons contribute to the formation of new memories. Um, some people had also considered how new neurons integrated into hippocampal, established hippocampal circuits might impact information already stored in those circuits. And there, so there were some surprising um, sort of names who, had, I mean, had considered this, one of which is Carl Dysroff, had um, um, written a paper in 2004 where he generated some relatively simple um, computational model of new neurons being added to the hippocampus and in that model he had considered the impact on encoding new information as well as already encoded information and the conclusion from that model was that the addition of new neurons should degrade existing memories and so there was some kind of theoretical precedent for the um, interpreting our initial results.
1: Yeah. and so then um, how do how do we reconcile then the this opposing potential that they you have more ner- new neurons to integrate into a memory and yet at the same time they compete then with the existing network, yeah so we know?
0: think I mean there's a balance between those two processes that is this this sort of stability plasticity dilemma the more plasticity you have the more di- new neurons you have you can make new memories but that's also bad for information already stored in the circuits yeah. and then the more stability you have the less neurogenesis you have um, the uh, the less opportunity for plasticity. So okay. I think the two go hand in hand with the way we think about it now is as, as new neurons integrate into circuits, they're involved in, to some degree, clearing out information, er- sort of eroding existing memories. And at the same time, once they're integrated, then they can contribute to um, encoding new information. So, so they have two, two kind of roles, which they do, um, we think at the moment, sequentially.
1: What were some of the experiment, the other experiments you followed up on to look at how the basically having new neurons are actually potentially contributing to the, either forgetting or to um uh stabilizing this the memories that are already
0: yeah recorded. so so once we once we appreciated that what we were looking at was potentially a forgetting effect i remember and this is like one when you have these are great moments in when you're doing science is that when you have that sort of insight then I remember one evening uh, Sheena and I wrote out essentially the next three years work uh, worth uh, of of experiments um, in in about an hour because it was just so obvious if we have this model then we should um, um, first test in adult animals if we increase neurogenesis after training that should lead to forgetting if we decrease neurogenesis after training that should under some conditions, stabilize memories. We also knew that in infant animals, they forget. They have high levels of neurogenesis, so we could test the idea that those high levels of neurogenesis were responsible for the forgetting you see in infancy, and then test that idea causally by reducing levels of neurogenesis, and so on and so forth. So we we're we able to generate yeah. like a whole series of experiments, which we then um, did over the next two or three years. That must have been an exciting hour of. <laughs> it was good because it was it was. Uh, we... I had similar kind
1: of experiences. I don't know why, but suddenly when if if. A little a little spark happens suddenly you can if everything is in place you can almost like it's yeah because then
0: then it becomes easy whereas like you know other times you're trying to force things trying to figure out but then it you know once this model was in place then it was easy just to say okay what types of experiments we should do and then um, I'm
1: assuming then was it like complete the next experiment falls and that fell in line with that was it kind of a then uh did you have some people in the labs start following up on this and of yeah. all the pieces? Yeah, I mean, it done? was a,
0: it was a remarkable process because the people who started the work, um, Catherine Akers, Alonso, um, Martinez Canabal and Wheeler Leonardo Restivo, there was four of them and they all worked as a team on this and they, they were very much responsible also for contributing to this sort of, these sorts of ideas. But what was, what was like, probably unusual in this case was in most labs and and this is typically the case in my lab as well you normally have one person leading the project in this case people really truly worked together on on this um on this project and they did an enormous amount of work in two years like two years we did all those experiments and yeah uh, yeah
1: i guess is there any other thing that we've missed on terms of like maybe major um areas that your lab is going in at the moment or um, yeah,
0: I mean, I guess one one thing which which is an area which I think lots of people are interested in is trying to understand um, um, sort of the com- brain complexity and doing whole brain imaging. So we're we're very interested in that um, that particular issue, and like many labs, and I found out here today, University of Texas, many labs are doing the same types of things using um, new tools where you can um, um, label or tag. Um, neurons that are active during a particular um, event and then do whole brain imaging of that activity and so on then trying to understand at a, at a whole brain level how different brain regions interact during encoding of memories during retrieval of memories how those interactions might change as a function of time so um, we're um, we're excited about doing those types of things so we're using um, brain clearing techniques so we can image the whole brain in one piece and we're using um um Arc trap, fos trap type mice, so you can tag active populations of cells, and then potentially manipulate their activity at later time points as well. So that, that's probably the other major area. What do you like most about
1: uh, being in science and being a, uh, a professor and kind of working with young uh, young scientists?
0: Yeah, I think the um, the best thing about being a scientist is is that it's a creative job, and so. Um, no one tells you what to do. I mean, there's certainly influences on what you do. There's more money for certain things and less money for others. And, and if you're doing things that people like, they give you more money. And, and if you're doing things that people don't appreciate so much, they give you less money. But all the same, it's a very sort of creative process. So every time you go to work, um, you know, you use your mind in, in interesting ways. And it's not, I, I think, I imagine it's not unlike if you're working in business, if you're a writer, if you're a, journalist or a, um, artist or whatever. It's, 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 it's really, you know, a, a very sort of fulfilling, um, process to, to do this kind of job. What
1: kind of, um, uh, interactions do you enjoy also by being a mentor and like, you know, having a, um, a, a, a diverse group of people that you sort of, uh, train and uh, get to work with on a daily basis?
0: Yeah, I, I re- I enjoy the mentoring, uh, process and I, you, I enjoy seeing people, um, grow. I enjoy from, you know, coming in as a master's student to where, um, maybe as they, as they mature as a graduate student, they come up with their own ideas. They become excited about the same sort of things I just talked about, but about the creative process. There's nothing ex- exciting, at least for me. I never found it particularly exciting running mice in water mazes. It's kind of boring and mundane. But the stuff I really like is thinking about experiments. And analysing data, and I I like it when I see see my um, students and postdocs sort of reach that same sort of uh, stage. Yeah.
1: Do you come from a scientific family or a background? Are you a a forerunner? Are you the uh, only science person in the in the field? Yeah, I'm. Like I'm the penigree? only
0: scientist. In fact, my um. So my father, he he worked uh, as an engineer. He was he worked in a nu- nuclear power station in in England. Uh, my mother worked as a social worker um and uh worked with old people um, um and also worked as a kindergarten sort of teacher as well that that sort of thing and so I always like to think of that, that i 'm some kind of hybrid of those two uh influences It's sort of more sort of hard sort of engineering and the more sort of understanding how people work and how people function from my mum but in I, I'm actually the first person. My brother and my sister. My brother works as an engineer, um, also in the nuclear power plant near my hometown. My sister works um, as an optician, um, but I'm the, actually you know, the only one who went to university. Uh,
1: yeah. So you guys had scientific kind of a. Uh, I guess it sounds like your siblings all like had like some
0: kind of scientific background. I think so. Like, that yeah, yeah. yeah, that yeah that's definitely a- the influence. Yeah. Could you tell us,
1: uh, is there any other kind of um, important things that you think as a, being a scientist, anything that, um, is there anything that you like to spend your time outside of just doing research that's kind of important to you?
0: That's, that's a good question. I, I, whether i mean outside of research, uh, my life has changed in the last five years because me and Sheena had a, had a daughter. So, so nice I think too. outside of, outside of research, then our time is, um, is, is with our daughter. And so, um yeah, yeah we're, yeah doing stuff with her going to parks going to museums and and so on how do you how
1: do you balance then the uh, the work and the uh, family kind of
0: i i think it's really really simple when you have um uh, our daughter's now 5 but when you have a kid that's five or less than five. When you go home, you can't do science. Yeah. There's, there's no, now and now she's old enough. She won't let us talk about um, science in front of her. So, uh, we we work from uh, eight till like four, and then we pick her up, and then um, and then that's it. And at weekends uh, we spend with her. So,
1: do you find yourself fighting the kind of innate sort of teaching her about
0: scientific things, just basically how the uh-huh. world works from your perspective? I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah. She she has an unusual. Uh, knowledge about the brain for someone who's five years old, I'd say. And uh, the other thing is when we were doing the forgetting work and you know the, the relevance of that work to infantile amnesia, she was about two or three years old, and so we were always asking her about her memory. So we would go to England to see her her grandparents, for example, and you know we'd ask her a week after we came back, you know, do you remember seeing uh, Granny and Grandad? And of course she would, and then we'd ask her like four months later, and she might still remember. Then we ask her like um, now, and she won't remember that trip at all. So, yeah. so we were sort of um, we want to say using her in our experiments, but we were <laughs> using Use her using her as our, our inspiration at least for understanding oh. um, how memory works and how forgetting works during infancy.
1: Oh, we didn't even talk about that. Would you? Would could we do a quick uh, summary about yeah what, infantile amnesia, what it is, and then what you guys think because this relates to kind of what we were talking about yeah. previously, but.
0: Yeah so so um one aspect of the so infantile amnesia was uh, it's something we're all familiar with if you ask anyone when their their first real memory is um it typically is when you're about 4 or 5 years old um it's um most usually for something um quite dramatic um, I think the most common first memory is the birth of a sibling um, it 's not my first memory because i 'm the youngest of three mm-hmm. um, and um, and so I getting beat up by a sibling now <laughs> yeah probably it 's probably something no, I, I, my, my first memory is of losing something and being upset about losing my hat off the side of a boat mm-hmm. um, yeah so so uh, freud Sigmund Freud was interested in, in infantile amnesia and, and he thought about it in terms of like sort of memory suppression or repression of memories from that period of a uh, our lives um, but really there's been no um, satisfactory sort of neurobiological account of of, of infantile amnesia and what um, we um, got into it by way of our neurogenesis studies and, and seeing the relationship between neurogenesis and forgetting and then also noting that in infancy neurogenesis levels in the hippocampus are high as our levels of forgetting of hippocampus type memories of um, memories for events, episodes, and asking whether those two things were related. So then we went and did some studies to um, manipulate levels of neurogenesis during infancy and ask whether that would lead to the relative preservation of memories, which might otherwise be forgotten. Those experiments, of course, were done in, um, in mice.
1: Awesome. I guess the final thing. Do you have any? Um, do you have any besides now? Uh, I'm sure having a daughter probably takes up a lot of your time when you get home. Is there any other interests or sort of like extracurricular things that you would like to spend time yeah. outside of science just to clear your mind?
0: I I know a little bit about neurogenesis, but I know everything about football. So I'm 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 a, I'm a oh, huge are you? football who are,
1: fan. Who is your team?
0: My team is a very un, well actually normally very unsuccessful team uh, they're, they're called West Ham, yeah um, but right now it's a very unusual time they're actually fifth in the uh, in the Premier League which oh, wow. is uh, highly unusual so so this
1: is for you. I'm sure like i uh know this feeling that if you root for the team that is normally not winning and you know it's been a long time it's extremely satisfying, more satisfying than <laughs> yeah than
0: a, yeah there's, there's yeah there's a there's a big sort of error signal there so yeah. when you when you get the a return uh, on investment. Yeah. To yeah. which all that yeah. time
1: yeah. <laughs> and disappointment is now turning around. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Do you? Um, uh, how was your World Cup experience this year? Did you... uh,
0: well, my I'm English, so my World Cup experience That's every boring. four years is miserable. Yeah. So <laughs> I. <laughs> uh and it was no different this this time around than uh, 4 years ago and 4 years before that guys, so, it was
1: you guys are in the league with it was Costa Rica and Costa Rica and Uruguay they, they, that was a interesting yeah. interesting uh, s- story <laughs> yeah so
0: uh it's the normal sort of uh like you know lots of huge disappointment for for all like, all <laughs> english people and uh, <laughs> this, this, yeah sunday all right well
1: Paul, thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.